Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking, the podcast series by the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS here in Houston. I am your host, Liz DeMontrand, and wow, it is good to be back in the seat, back in the studio. It's been probably around six months, so it feels good to be back. I am accompanied by my teammates, mentor, neighbor, fellow art enthusiast, very young. Did I miss anything else? That covers a lot, Liz. Thanks. <laughs> oh, maybe UGA Bulldog. Yes, national and champion. national champion. Yes, there you go. Exactly. Just want to plug that in there. Well, we're very Thanks glad for to have adding you back. That. Yeah, of course. No, you got to soak it up. And we're thrilled today to be introducing our guests, especially, you know, we're recording this it's January 2023, so we've wrapped up a challenging year for markets, mm-hmm. and we're looking ahead to the new year. But Barry, do you want to do the honors to introduce our guest? I'd be glad to. Our guest today is my good friend, Chris Wallace, who is uh, the president, CEO, CEO of uh, Vaughn Nelson uh, here in Houston, is primarily a equity manager with $15 billion under management, which is an amazing... <laughs> Trying uh, to hold on to it. It's an amazing number rolling <laughs> off the tongue. Chris, welcome. Thanks for, thanks Thank for you. coming. Good to be here. Yeah, great. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background? I know you've been sure. in the investing business for a long, long time, so curious to hear more about Yeah, no, I, I've been at Vaughn Nelson for, I guess, 23 years now. Still lead our small cap, U.S. small cap value strategy. Really focused on building out the North American assets. And then three years ago, we launched some non-U.S. assets as well. So we kind of cover the gamut now. We also have a robust fixed income team as well. So it's been a good run. We're probably a little different than most managers in that we spend a lot of time on macro as it relates to growth, inflation, liquidity, and bubbles, mainly just to keep those risks out of the portfolio and and make sure we're operating off our front foot. We don't want to be defensive in the markets. We want to use the market volatility to our advantage and knock on wood, so far so good. In your mind, what has changed most in the investment business over the past 23 years? Yeah, you know, really the market structure has changed more than anything else. And what I mean by that is where the liquidity come from, what the decision criteria are. Like we don't, the market is not a discounting mechanism like it was when I started 23 years ago. We originally blamed a lot of that on quantitative easing and the, the dumbing down of volatility and you know the lower cost of capital. So you didn't have the creative destruction elements that you typically have in the market and the economy. But the reality is it's really the growth of passive. Passive is well over 50% of the market. It's no longer passive. It has a huge influence. It's the world's simplest algorithm. Buy when I get money, sell when I need money. It doesn't care about price. It doesn't care about fundamentals. So if you understand that and you embrace that, you can use it to your advantage. And that's what we try to do with uh, unexpected volatility in the market, for sure. I mean, it carries things to extreme, to the upside and to the downside. So I think that's by far the biggest change in the market. Chris, we'll, going back to your, I don't think I've ever asked you about your experience at Baylor and yeah. what the time lapse was from Baylor to yeah. graduate school. <laughs> okay, it's, I was probably perfectly created for a credit crisis. <laughs> so the leaving Baylor, I left Baylor in 91, which is at the very end of the SNL crisis. So I had witnessed what happened in real estate. 
Uh, went to work at Cooper's and Libran, and the first week on the job post-training, my first assignment was to show up on Friday with five foot of chain and a padlock and close a bank. So I closed a bank my first week in my new career as an ex-student. Really shifted from there and started doing uh, healthcare consulting at Cooper's and Libran. And at that time, we went in and were completely changing the reimbursement methodology. So this was when Hillary Care was alive and well, and we were moving from cost plus to DRGs and really wrecked that industry. And that was a great lesson plan for me as to how much strategy mattered, balance sheet mattered, assets mattered, regulation mattered. And then exiting grad school, I really wanted to take those experiences and, and try to cut my teeth and have a profession in investing. And really, it spent my time in grad school trying to understand what that meant and kind of separated it between venture capital, private equity, and public equity. And you know, I was graduating in 98, had three kids under three, a mountain of student debt, needed to find a place to raise, raise this tribe. And so we picked Houston because we wanted an incredibly culturally diverse city to raise them in. And I actually picked public equities over private equity opportunity. Terrible decision from a personal finance standpoint. <laughs> but that said, I did it because I knew at the end of the 90s we were moving into a secular bear market. And I also knew that the world was going to change. I had studied kind of really long-dated cycles, the 80 and 90-year generation cycles, and understood that we were, and during my career beyond just that initial secular bear market, I was going to experience a generational reset, exactly what we're doing right now with entitlements, and we're going to deal with the sovereign uh, debt issues. And so I wanted the liquidity of public markets over the control of private equity, and intentionally chose public equities and then started at Vaughn Nelson and, and rolled out our philosophy and process and have been fortunate to have just a great team around so me the whole way. Where, where were you at, at Cooper's? What, where were you located? I was in Dallas. Okay, in Dallas. Yeah. So what was it like going from <laughs> Texas to Boston? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was interesting. I was so naive. Um, it was a, it, obviously for a kid from central Texas – who had traveled enough, but still grew up fairly in a fairly homogeneous cultural environment, to say the least. It was fun. Like, I really enjoyed everybody I met from all over the world. I learned more from the other students than I ever did from the professors or the textbooks, just from their experiences learning about what they had done and their cultures and everything. So it was fabulous. And it was a big driver of why... My wife, my wife was from Dallas. It's where we met. shouldn't say it. She's actually my boss. I couldn't get away with that today. But we intentionally came back to Houston because of our experience in Boston and just enjoying the, the cultural richness and diversity that existed there. And we wanted to be able to replicate that. And there aren't many places in the South you can do that. That sets up my next question. Yeah. I mean, you're a pretty worldly guy. <laughs> I don't you're know about, about that. You're about to shove off and go to India. Yeah, that'll be fun. And you guys just bought a non-U.S. equity yes. money manager in the last yes. couple of years. And, um, you know, as you think about being here in yep. Houston, mm -hmm. how does that color your investment outlook? Yeah. And you know, my other question there, you can, you can cover them both, but 
Do you think travel is important for your process? When you're early in your career, travel is really important. Not that I've seen everything or done everything, but I, I think I've got a healthy perspective because I've seen a lot of industries from the inside out. Like I, I tell people, it's not your spreadsheet. Like you really need to see a lot of plants. You really need to talk to a lot of management teams in order to make the qualitative assessments that you need to make. You know, it's interesting. That it's funny. No matter, we have clients all over the world. And regardless of whether it's a Houston client, a client in Europe, a client even in the Middle East or Australia, they all want to know our view on energy just because we're here in right. Houston, right. which I find funny. We're not energy guys. We always have a view. We, we try to ground it in the fundamentals. We don't have a bias there. I think the biggest advantage we've had being in Houston is not being in New York. We don't get wrapped up in the group think. I think part of it is we have a Everybody at our firm is insanely competitive. They understand it's competition as a team. It's the team that's going to win. But more importantly, they, they are passionate about this business. And they're passionate about the city they live in, which means you can't lose at this business because you can't go across the street and find another job. And so we don't get caught up in the group think. We can really be pretty objective and I think, that's, I think that makes a huge difference for us. If you get in these big financial centers and everybody's going to the same parties, and I think you can just get trapped in, in market narratives. And market narratives are dangerous. The market functions by price moves, and then we wrap a story around it. And we're seeing that even year to date with the little rally we're having. You know, it's the soft landing scenario, whatever. Right. These you know, are you've seen a, a huge differential in performance between U.S. and non-U.S. assets, and a lot of that... So, well, I'll tell you a lot of it has to do with the direction of the dollar. Yep. And in the face of the yep. kind of crises that we've faced. Yep. But, you know, there, there's an incredible home bias in yes. investing. Yes. And it's particularly strong in Houston, I might add. And um, I wonder if you could address <laughs> yeah. that. Look, I think the U.S. investors have been incredibly lucky because they've had a target rich environment for a century plus. They've had the dominant reserve currency, so you know the need even contemplating getting out of your currency wasn't necessary. We've led the development from a technological standpoint for a lot of the technologies that are the largest companies today. And along the way, we happen to become the largest energy producer in the world. And okay, you know, you could get away with with not investing in the rest of the world. You know, when you go into other developed regions, that's not their viewpoint. Uh, if you're in Germany, you know, there's a reason the euro came together. They used to have to take currency risk if they wanted to invest in their, in their neighbors. If you're in Australia, you don't have the diversification, broadly speaking, in your home indices. If you want to get away from over-levered banks and over-levered housing and mining, you got to invest in the rest of the world. So, you know, it's, it's interesting working with consultants all around the world and institutional investors and pension plans all around the world. Look, the smartest investors are not in the U.S., not that we don't have fabulously sophisticated investors here. It's just they haven't been as challenged as an investor is in the rest of the world. So I, I think it's going to I think that is one of the shifts we're going to see 
it is one of the reasons we've spent six years finding the right team to bring in to offer non-U.S. equities, uh, because we think there's going to be a real opportunity to um, have that exposure over the next yeah, 10 years. Spoken like a true U.S. small cap. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. I, actually, I love exploring this idea between, you know, U.S. and the rest of the world. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the Federal Reserve, even though they're a domestic entity, you know, they yes. make obviously seismic moves with their policy, yes. global economy. You mentioned following, you know, macro. How closely do you all follow the Fed? And also, yes. if you were to grade their performance over the past few years, I'd give them a, a, an F. Wow. <laughs> I'd F give them, fail. I'd give them a complete failure. Now, we follow the Fed very closely. Look, I, there's just, because we're the reserve currency, whatever the Fed does, we export that policy to the rest of the world. And there's no, there's no way around it. And while it, the policies that are chosen are chosen for short-term political reasons and political expediency. For the long-term, they're the worst policies that you could imagine for an economy. You know, we can argue whether or not Bernanke needed to bail out the banks. But I don't think you can come up with a plausible argument for why Yellen kept rates as low as she did for as long as she did and for quantitative easing to go, as go on as long as it did. And it is what distorted capital to the extent, and it is the reason, and this is going to be one of the big resets we see over the next several years. I don't think people realize since 2016, the U.S. economy could not generate positive GDP growth unless the federal government expanded their deficits, which meant it just got to be too large a part of the economy. and We became too inefficient with the allocation of capital that it's the only way we could grow. And then we just really amped that up with COVID. We've seen federal spending from 2019 to 2020 grow 47%. And it's a problem. And so I'll give them a, a big F. The reason, look, the, the Fed's number one job is to make the Treasury look solvent. It's not to maximize employment and steady prices. That's the marketing campaign. It's to keep the Treasury solvent. And the Fed is tasked right now with getting rates back below 2%. They have to. They have. Right. And they, don't, they have a very short window of time to do it. So I would describe it as they're in the game of breaking things. That's why they raised rates as high as they did, as fast as they did. They need to break inflation. They need to break the economy. They need to break the markets to force people back into treasuries. And if they don't, they're going to have to flip, use yield curve control and print, which then brings back inflation. So I give them a big F. But that's just one man's opinion. How does that how does that that view play towards small caps and yeah, traditional value so investing? I really think we're going back to the future. There's a couple of things that are lining up. One is, look, if we've trained investors to be ready for a shock and then a monetary stimulus response, some policy that dampens the volatility and kind of saves the day. And those days are gone. And what we're going to go through are these series of rollings resets. And one is monetary policy, right? That's because of the excess monetary policy in conjunction with the fiscal stimulus with COVID, we've got real inflation. And when you do, that takes that tool away from the Fed. It's no longer a benign tool. And what that means is you have to rely on fiscal policy and or you have to retrench, cut fiscal spending. So if we just let fiscal policy lapse and we let all of the stimulus programs roll off, 
U.S. GDP would contract at least 5% between the now and 2025. So what does that tell me? They're not going to let any of that happen. So they're going to stir the pot, which means we get volatility. And what it also means is we're not going to get the respite from inflation. It's peaked. It'll go down sub 3%. We may get to 2 But there's structural reasons it was going to be elevated anyway. And we're restarting a commodity cycle. That means we're restarting a value cycle. It also means we're repricing equity markets writ large. So it means it's really positive for active management. We've really seen that start to show up. It's really positive for not large caps. So whether it depends on how you want to define small, some people consider small sub two billion. The reality is it goes up to about seven billion today, but not large caps because large caps is where the capital is and it's where it's going to leave because other areas of the market and the economy are going to start to show better growth, better returns, and they're infinitely less expensive and more attractive from a return standpoint. So right. So those cash flows hold up better on a standalone basis. Should and and they're not. Yeah. If there's no macro yeah. stimulus, no yeah. help from the Fed. Yeah. So everybody, right. look what happens, and we've seen these play out for a number of years. That the pattern's really typical. You get to the end of a quote growth cycle. And all a growth cycle is, is the downside of a commodity cycle. Because when commodities are oversupplied and the prices are falling, it slows growth. Central banks respond by easing monetary conditions. They can get away with it because when commodities are in a downturn, there's no inflation. And everybody crowds into long duration, high PE, fixed income, real estate, growth stocks. The minute it turns, the S&P falls 50% on a real basis. Well, if you go back and look at the peak of the NASDAQ in November to about today, we're probably down 30% on a real basis, 35% on a real basis. And the reason it falls is that's what everybody owns. That's why you look at the right. S&P, so it's the, 20. So, so this is underscoring the pitfalls of indexing. 100%. So what you're talking about is price dispersion. Yep. So. What's going to happen is people are going to keep peeling out of large mega cap and peeling into what works, and they're going to chase energy and small caps and SMIDs and maybe even non-U.S. securities. We'll see. we got to see how that plays you're, out. There's you're a, to date so far. That's the case. <laughs> I know. But I know. if we get stickier interest rates that yes. stay higher for longer, isn't yeah. that punitive to smaller cap it, names? It depends. What it does is it, it, it cuts out the non-economic entities. So for the survivors, they do much better. So I think it just clears the decks. So I take about, look, I don't think any index is going to degrade. So gun to my head, I think the S&P 500 for the next 10 years is going to give you 4%. Uh, that's just what the valuations show. That's where we are. Because we're, we're going to go through these series of resets. So you know, commodities, industrials are going to garner a larger part of the economy. Financials are going to be under pressure for the next couple of years. Growth will kick back in eventually, maybe. But how much do you give back in valuations? And so all those resets are an issue. It's not any different in small cap. So small cap core has a lot of biotech, healthcare, software, blah, blah, blah. You know, a third of the Russell 2000 doesn't make money, will never make money. But the volatility for us, I mean, we we thought we got generational buying opportunities during COVID. We got fabulous buying opportunities in the summer. Housing, they blew it up. Like, they just obliterated it. So we got fabulous opportunities. They're doing the same I mean, thing. At the risk of now. throwing a bomb here, I mean, <laughs> aren't you, when you index, I mean, aren't you saying in a way 
that valuation doesn't matter? Yes. Look, indexing is is fabulous way to get market exposure. Sure. There's no question. It's efficient. You need to own beta. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But it's not at every part in time is that what you should be doing. So that's why go look but at But there's your, so many instruments that are tied to an index. Yeah. Yep. It's yes. overwhelming. Like I think about the insurance yes. markets, yeah. for instance. It's all a part of the reset we'll go through. So I'll say this because it's hyperbole and it drives the point home. It will not surprise me if we have to regulate indices in the back part of this decade. And what I mean by that is we've already seen what happens with index and index flows in market dislocations in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. Like we, we legitimately broke the credit markets in the treasury market. We broke them in the fourth quarter of 19 in the fourth quarter of 18. The amount of money overwhelms on the other side. So you're going to get to a point just with target date funds, right? Let alone everything else you're describing, where you'll get nonlinear price moves up and down. And so when you talk about, well, markets would just reach affinity, right? They would just, there is no price to clear. And you can have the same thing on the downside. So I think we end up regulating it. It wouldn't shock me if, you know, the Fed decides they're going to be the market maker for it or something well, silly I mean, like that. Look at the Jap- Japanese yeah, market. They, 100%. I mean, they're loaded to the boat yep. and uh, or loaded the boat on ETFs yep. in that market. Yeah, they own seventy five percent of it. They're scratching their heads, going, well, yep. well, "How do we get out of this?" Yep, they can't. Yeah, you can't. There's no way it, it can't clear. So, look, we've taken it to its logical extreme. It doesn't make sense anymore. My thought is really simple. You know, unless you're in an extreme in valuation, like we were at the end of 19, certainly at the end of 20 and into 21, indexes are fine. They're, they're an adequate way. But when you go through the reset we're going to go through, it's not a great place to put money. Like, you, you know, you can go buy short-dated investment-grade bonds and outperform the, invest, the S&P right now. So the art of price discovery. Yeah. <laughs> it has a renaissance. And yes. How does it... Yeah, we call it, it investing. <laughs> should make that a bumper sticker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's investing, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> how does that hold up, though, in the age of the quant? And that's the quant. Yeah. Like, I've spent some time with some of these guys in yep. the last year, and that's not going away. Nope, not yet. It's not going to go away slowly. Look, if you're a quant and you're you're evolving, right? If you're truly evolving with the markets, there's flows that you can trade. There's arbitrage that you can take advantage of. There's momentum you can take advantage of. Can you scale it to a point? You can to a point. But ultimately, you know, Price discovery, like as you say, it's going to matter. We got to markets have to clear, right? So the dislocation, to give you an idea, the dislocations we saw in March of 20 within equity markets was only driven by, you know, like a hundred million dollar move out of a total return strategy. It was nothing. Like it wasn't one percent of the funds invested. So. Now think about, go forward through the decade and think about, we're going to flip to where the, our boomer generation are in net liquidation. Okay, we can clear those markets. You just have to cut the price and we can clear them. 
So that's, that's how we're going to see price discovery happen. It's going to be disjointed, painful, and fun. And I like it. Like, I love the volatility. I'm having more fun now than I've had, certainly in the last 10 years. This is almost like back to 03. 03 to 09 was fabulous. Like, you could really get some good bites at the Apple then. And we've had them. Like, tw from 2020 through today, we've had a lot of fun. And we're going to – look, and for anybody out there that thinks there's a soft landing and it's just back half recovery, dude, yeah, th that show's not around anymore. It's so going to be a lot more fun than that. A little bit of a segue question. As it relates to your process of price discovery, yeah. right, the securities yeah. analysis, the precursor yeah. to actually investing yeah. – you know, the industry has become enamored of sustainability factors, ESG, yeah. and it really is quite inane, if I can <laughs> use that word. Yeah. And it seems like it's all show. Maybe yeah. there is some substance there, yeah. but the substance needs to lead to profitability. 100%. And so... So the whole idea has almost been co-opted yes. in a way. And I wonder if you could comment on what, what how you guys are yeah. practicing it. Yeah, for sure. And like where does the what recycled does rubber you yeah. know, hit the road? Look, look at, the, at the end of the day, ESG is nothing new. Like I've had socially responsible clients for 20 years. And whether they're religious affiliations or their Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds. Everybody has different interests and different ideas of what's good and bad, right? Medical research is bad. Oil is good. Oil is bad. You know, certain region technology is bad. That's not new. Looking at off-balance sheet and environmental impact studies and what could come up and, and damage a balance sheet in the future is not new. Governance, look, if you're not looking at the proxy statements and the comp plans for these management teams and you're not looking at their, their governance policies, then I, you know, I, it's hard to consider yourself a, a longer-term investor. So none of this is new. Now, some of the narratives are new, right? You know, carbon's bad, okay, maybe, except that you know, it's really close to a carbohydrate and food's good and without carbon you don't get food. Renewables are fantastic, but scientifically they're, they're good for about 9% of the applications out there, and it depends on where they are. You can't, we can't generate and even make a transition to renewables unless we produce a lot more fossil fuels. So there's a difference between the narrative and the reality. The truth is, like I say, cold and hunger focuses the mind. And so we've had a big focus of mines, and we're going, okay, we're, sh we're massively short fossil fuels. We are massively short capital. How are we going to address that? And so we're, I think the rhetoric from large investors is dialed back. There's an understanding that it's not that oil is bad, right? right. How you produce it and where it comes from matters. From a practical standpoint as an investor, we're not changing at all what we're doing. What we're saying is our clients are going to ask us to measure things and be able to report things. I'm not going to change how value is created. It's all driven still by return on invested capital. But if we want to measure shifts in governance, shifts in environmental impact, 
you need to get out. You need to get up to speed on the databases that are available. The data is terrible. You can't make decisions based on the data. We've been investing in both personnel and data so that we can start to get to the information. To to the extent our our companies aren't reporting, we're encouraging them to report to the services so that they have accurate data. I think it's going to be a measurement exercise more than anything else. And at the end of the day, look, we're going to be so short food and carbon and fossil fuels for the next several years. All this rhetoric is definitely going to get dialed back. Earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned, you know, starting your career and choosing public equities over private equities. Yeah. You know, I think recently there's been some concerns about the private equity space. Sure. And delayed marks, low quality investments, <laughs> leverage. I know that's not your space, but what are yeah. your thoughts on some of those concerns? And, and do you think they're Look, systemic? I will say this, and I'm not calling out private equity. We have been through probably one of the most irresponsible investment periods, certainly in a generation. I think I'm fairly good at being cynical. I'm a reformed accountant and auditor. You know, we saw the shenanigans at Enron fairly early. We were pretty suspicious of WorldCom. Like, I I think I can smell a rat. There's more fraud broadly in public markets than there has been in a long time. Now, we we can say we've legalized it, we let people get away with it, we sugarcoat things, we say things that aren't true, but it's okay until the prices go down. Then once the marks show up quicker in public markets, people get in trouble. So we've seen that with crypto, we, we'll, we'll see more of that. I don't think the private equity model is broken by any stretch. Did they get to an extreme? Yes. Have they been trading among themselves or even among their sister funds to maybe keep marks and delay some reckoning? Yes. Did they overpay and overlever? Some did. Some didn't, right? Where it became a fundraising game, you know, did did BREIT lower its minimums too much? Things like that to play games about raising money rather than deploying capital? Absolutely. Is there going to be a pretty good digestion period? 100%. Would I avoid private equity? Nope. I'd actually start to think now. Like, there's going to be good vintages where I have involvement with endowments. Like, I, you know, we're not going to shy away from it, but we're not going to get caught up in the mystique of it either. Yeah, so since we've got you way off topic on private equity, non-U.S. equities, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to close that segment out with uh, a question about real estate. Yeah. And since yeah, you know, prior to COVID, that was the nexus of yeah, you know, the bear market and yeah. the last giant liquidity crisis yeah. that we had. Yeah. And the Feds played kick the can with yes. some of these things. And, yes. And you know now it seems like well, also you know the industry has changed in a profound way yeah you know that that we're all aware of and yep. yet marks are stale yep cash flows have ceased yep vacancies are high yep could you see a liquidity crisis there or is it going to be more contained relative to uh, the equity yep. owners just go ahead and taking their lumps Look, I don't want to call it a credit crisis because everything harkens back to the great financial crisis. And that was very different because in the financial crisis, we literally broke the plumbing of the private sector. And so it was we didn't we didn't have the emergency 
pipes in place that we do today to get liquidity to where it needs to be to keep the system from kind of caving in on itself. So I don't think we're going to go through anything like that. Do I think we in general have a serious liquidity shortage? I 100% think we do. You know, if we could do visuals, imagine I showed you a chart of M2 and M2 kind of grew mid to high single digits since the 60s, and then we kind of ramped it up to low double digits in parts of the 70s and created a lot of inflation. In COVID, we grew at 24%, and then we grew at an additional double digits in 21. For the first time in 60 years, M2 is shrinking. It never shrinks, right? We'll shrink it month on month. Year on year, we're shrinking M2. Um, That's just one primary view of liquidity. We do not, liquidity has to grow exponentially every year. And if it doesn't, then either economic activity has to contract or asset prices have to fall. Not all asset prices, but asset values have to contract. And so this is all a part of resetting monetary policy and dealing with base level inflation that's with us. It was gonna be with us without COVID at this point in time in history. So yeah, we have a liquidity issue. I think real estate's interesting. And there's another piece of this that I think equity investors or investors in general aren't used to, which is large institutions, when we had interest rates, call it sub 3%, had to reach for yield. They have to hit that 6 or 7% bogey to, to, to meet their pension obligations. They don't want to give a guy like me money. Right? right. If I underperform, that's career risk for them. But if they can just buy an index, buy a diversified real estate portfolio and leverage it up and get 9 or 10% and not have to deal with knuckleheads like me, they're going to do that. Now, when we took rates to 0%, we, we really overextended those allocations. What I would tell you is the largest institutions on the planet right now are looking at a world with a you know, 4% U.S. two-year, and I can go buy an investment-grade bond at 5 to 6%, and they're going, I don't need to take equity risk. So while everybody thinks, oh, the money's going to leave the bond market and come into equities, like, I'm not 100% sure that's how this trade plays out, not over the medium term. And so I think that extends to real estate as well. Real estate will reprice. We're not going to change an appetite for real estate. So do I think we're in a period, I think we're in the eye of the hurricane for traditional real estate, and that the marks between where the cost of capital is and where the cap rates are still too wide, we're going to pretend like it's going to get better. It's not, right? This is, to give you an idea, we've destroyed between 30 and $35 trillion worth of wealth in the last 12 to 18 months. And that has a negative self-reinforcing impact. So, you know, there's not going to be this robust recovery when we get through this Fed tightening phase. And so there's not going to be the cash flows to sustain the rents and keep up with the property tax increases and the maintenance increases. So we're going to reprice commercial real estate. We need to do that. So as an example, I came into the year owning zero REITs because I figured we'd blow up the fixed income market too in 22. In the fourth quarter, we bought two REITs. Right, they're short cycle, industrial, right, where they're not deploying capital. Cap rates are already high single digits. They can reprice their leases and they get 7% rent growth. 
and self-storage, which is an unmitigated disaster, but it reprices monthly, and I'm going to get through that in 12 months. I'm not interested in, in commercial real estate beyond that. Private marks are well behind that. I think we're going to see more gating of funds, not just in real estate, but elsewhere in credit. I think we push people and investors reach for yield into places that aren't that liquid. I think the, the repricing in commercial real estate is going to last longer than what industry participants want it to be. It'll be more painful than what they want it to be. But at the end, institutions are going to be right there again to gobble it up. So I just think it's a valuation reset. And if you've got the balance sheet to withstand it, you're going to be in great shape. But if you think you're going to go back to 2 and 3% cap rates and that's what you're hoping for and you're levered, you know, you're, going to, you're going to pass those keys to the next owner. All right. And if there's a shortage you know, of you know, energy, in this case, or commodities, or yeah. a shortage of capital, you, by definition, you, you, you can't, it bleeds over into like Everywhere. policy issues, yes. right? And so, 100%. you know, how much allowance is there going to, you know, are, are there concerns around, you know, government intervention and markets? Oh, I, I think it's... And, and how much allowance is, is going to be put forward to create investment opportunity in, for instance, a hydrocarbon economy? Yeah. So it, it's interesting... A lot of guys on our team who are really, you know, just by nature of their career, haven't been through a recession and, and issues yet. They've gone back and started looking at newspaper clippings and headlines from the 20s and 30s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And you'd be surprised to find out you, they're the exact same headlines as today. So at the end of the day, we are not going to get political solutions to any of these problems. And you won't get a political solution for any of the issues that are going to crop up until that solution is the most politically expedient outcome. And so what I mean by that is Europe is massively short fossil fuels, so they're going to pass a windfalls profit tax. And short capital. Yes, 100%. But that's politically expedient. Right. We have a, a, a very significant but real inflation. It's a completely unsustainable. Yeah. It makes it, it exacerbates all the problems. So we'll solve them with time and space, and we're just going to drive the car, you know, bouncing off both guardrails the whole way down till we finally get it straightened out. We have an inflation problem. What did California do? They passed stimulus checks. Okay, that's okay. Politically, it gets you reelected. It does not solve your inflation problem. The Inflation Reduction Act was designed to do two things, drive renewables and make Europe our surrogate. Make sure that they're never independent again and gut them while we have them down. That's what it was all about. Okay, that, that doesn't help any of these issues. So no, politics is gonna be a problem. I'll give you, a, here's, a, here's a stat, which is why I think 20, 2023 is going to be interesting because it's going to depend on whether the Fed blinks or not. So about half of uh, U.S. federal debt refinances over like a two-year period. And coming into 22, we were borrowing at about 1.7%, and it was roughly, call it, you know, 13% of tax receipts to cover the interest. Uh, we'll reprice all of that over start because we started in 22 through a probably mid-2024. And if we do it at 4%, you know, tax receipts, inflated tax receipts from a bubble, keep in mind about 20% of tax receipts come from capital gains. 
tax receipts, about a third of tax receipts would just be used to cover interest. And never mind, Medicare Part A runs out from funding standpoint in 2027. So, you know, when we talk about a series of resets, I think we're, we, are, we are right there. We're going to see the Fed either really ramp up QT and try to crack things or shift to yield curve control like the Bank of Japan. And we're going to see similar outcomes out of this debt ceiling negotiation. And when you think we need federal deficits to drive growth, and if not, we're going to have a recession, what are the politics around a midterm election if you're in a recession or you just reaccelerated inflation? There's not a lot of good choices. Right. But given those unknowns, especially around the yield curve, isn't yeah. that why you want to own cash flowing yes. type investments? Yes. Look. The last three years, 2021, 2022, have been relatively easy for an active manager to position for, at least on a relative basis, right? You can't tactically go all cash like you could, even if you think it's a bear market. But you could, there is no way anyone could say with a straight face they know how to position right now for beyond mid-year 23. And the reason I say that is we have very significant policy choices we have to make that are going to have very material impacts on asset prices and cost of capital. We know without a doubt the economy is going to cycle down pretty aggressively this quarter, next quarter, earnings are, and we know inflation is going to de decelerate massively. Your only underlying protection in all of that is cash flows. Companies with, you've, you've got to look at a company and go, you know, if you love a company and the PE multiples come from 35 to 25, then you're making a bet that inflation isn't going to reaccelerate and that that multiple isn't going to compress more. If you own a company that's trading at 12 to 18 times that has good cash flow and is going to be able to grow earnings over the next three years and doesn't have to refi debt at 2x the interest rate, you're kind of agnostic where inflation goes within the realm of possibilities. You're kind of agnostic as to whether you have a hard landing or soft landing. So that's where what you own, this is price discovery, this investing, right? right? There's a difference between owning the market and investing. And you've got a margin of it's you know, a margin, error. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, margin of safety. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> exactly. You have no right to make money. That's what people need to be reminded of. <laughs> <laughs> you, the, ever, all the punditry is talking about you know, recessionary trends, almost yeah. as if it's inevitable. Yeah. And they've been talking about it for a while. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like it's the most telegraphed recession, you know, of, of my career. Yep. Yeah. And so... I did run into uh, a couple of your colleagues this morning uh -oh. uh, on my way uh, to the office. I'll so, try to keep my and story I said, straight. What, what <laughs> question should I ask Chris, um, <laughs> you know, to get him discombobulated? And they said, ask him why he's wrong. Oh, yeah. So my I'm question is wrong. not why ask you're my wrong. Wife. My question is, why would people be wrong about a recession? Yeah. So, like, what is that framework? And also, as it pertains to like industry focus, because yeah. you know, it seems like you mentioned the takedown in housing. Yep. You've seen you know terrible uh, results um, from you know some of the big investment houses earnings wise, but you've seen some pretty good earnings in other places. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So could it be, you know, what's the, the reaction and in the stock market mm-hmm. can be quite different from mm-hmm. what happens in the economy? Yeah. So I always like to say the economy and the stock market are not the same thing. They're in the same building. They're on different floors every now and then they pass each other in the hall. Right. That, that's about it. Let's talk about what a recession is. When I talk about recession, I'm not talking about economic negative GDP. Right. It's interesting. It matters. It kind of doesn't matter. What I'm talking about is earnings. So when I say we're we are going to have a recession, we are already having an earnings recession. The question really is, is it how, how reflexive does it get to the downside? Do I think we're going to have a, a recession in the economy? I do. Like I do. Now, is it going to be? Like, I, I think month-on-month uh, month and quarter-on-quarter quarter GDP growth for the next few months is going to be minus, somewhere minus one and a half, minus three. Now, does that mean year-over-year year we're below zero? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But it doesn't matter to me because I know we're going to have an earnings recession. To your point, it's different. That's what I meant. People are used to this shock. It's a COVID recession or it's the great financial crisis and nobody can borrow to make payroll. And so everything goes into recession together. I remember when we used to have regional recessions, right? In the 90s, way back in the day, the Northeast is in recession, but the South is booming. Or now, as you point out, it's industry specific. There are long leads and lags. So everybody's excited about the industrials that reported their fourth quarter earnings. Yeah, they're late, 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 late cycle. They should be doing fabulous, and they did. Now, look at semiconductors, semi-cap equipment, housing. They've been in an 18-month bear market. Are they going to bottom first? Yeah, I think they will. They've already been in a recession. So different parts of the economy, different parts of the world, like it, I think we're going to be in these rolling recessions, some driven by earnings, some driven by rising cost of capital. So what we did, we looked at 2022 price performance and just adjusted for the increased cost of debt. And it's almost to the penny. The fall in the market was driven by the rise in interest rates. And so a lot of the discussion is around, well, a re- earnings recession is priced in. I go... Yeah, but now you're telling me passive is really good at discounting things. And what I'm saying is they're really not. What I think what we did was we raised the cost of capital. Allocators pulled money, deployed it over here where they could get a return, and we repriced assets accordingly. I really think that's all we've gone through. At the same time, while I'm telling you that I think we're going to have a pretty deep earnings recession over the next six months, I'm not worried about it. Because I think what really matters for 23 is what does it look like after, right? You know, is the S&P going to go from 200 to 180 and not grow earnings from there? Is it going to go from 200 to 180 back to 240? Like, we can already see it. We already see the layoffs. Like, we have all the telltale signs. We have the inverted yield curves in the appropriate places. So, I look, I think it's in front of us. Does it matter? I don't know. Depends on what it looks like, but it's not going to be this bear market, this recession is not going to be like anything we've seen in the last 23 years. It's going to be very different. I think we're going to have rolling resets, rolling opportunities across sectors and regions of the world and market cap. And if you're nimble, 
you can take advantage right, of it. You can pick your spot, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, yeah, 100%. A great example, energy in, in 22. So we thought we would be short of, of fossil fuels by the fourth quarter of 22. We saw Russian tanks surrounding Ukraine. We said, that's a problem. We ramped into it immediately. Energy doubled by early June. The fall of all of oil started breaking out. That told us energy was going to crack. We sold energy in half. And then we, I'm in small cap, I was long natural gas producers. I whacked them again in the fourth quarter. And I'm sitting here telling you, I think we're going to be so short natural gas in three years. But what did we have? We had a recession in liquidity. What cracked commodities, my belief, in 2022 was a lack of liquidity to the trading houses. There's nothing more capital intensive than trading commodities. And when the volatility went up, the banks drew the lines down and they needed more capital and couldn't get it, so we had to liquidate positions. All we had was a liquidity recession and that cracked commodity prices. So you just gotta be nimble, you gotta pay attention. Well, I think we're going to start closing things out. This is our longest <laughs> podcast episode, and I kind of don't want to stop talking. Feels like it's only been five minutes. I know. I mean, Underwater, I feel like, right? yeah, I feel like my takeaway from this conversation, like you said, Chris, is just opportunity. Mm-hmm. Also, Tina versus Tara. Mm-hmm. There is no alternative to the S&P 500, to there are real alternatives. Yes. Which is, you know, great for price discovery. Yep. For sure. So... I'm going to go ahead and close this out. Chris, thank you so much for joining. This was super, super interesting. And again, just happened at a great time as we're, you know, facing the year ahead. So, and thank you, Barry. Great way to get the year kicked off. Thanks. Yes, exactly. Enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks everyone. This has uh, been an episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking. I'm your host, Liz DeMontron, signing off. Thanks again. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.